Playfield and Associates is based in Sydney on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to Gadigal elders and to traditional custodians of country throughout Australia. From Clayfield and Associates, I'm Claire, and I'm pleased that you could join me for this episode of What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. Episode 99. And this week, I was joined on the podcast by Marnie Watson, Chief Commercial and Partnership Officer at Acumen, which is part of Sanum S4 Group. If you want to know anything about transnational education in any of its various guises, international education partnerships in universities, private higher education, and in vet, both public and private, then Marnie is someone with deep expertise having lived most of her life in Southeast Asia, working in a number of T&E roles with and for Australian institutions. With the Australian government looking to see more Australian universities in particular engaging in T&E in Southeast Asia and elsewhere, and with very different models emerging between the opportunities being made available, for example, in the Gujarat Free Trade Zone, Gift City, which... I have to tell you, a senior Australian education official has described to me recently as, quote, dangerous and very risky. And the non-profit Yaya San model, for example, which operates in Indonesia, which I think brings its own risks. And of course, to be clear, they also bring many, many benefits for all various models. It was unsurprising that during our conversation, Marnie explained not only the need for things like a really comprehensive but timely due diligence on potential partners, but also the need to get your exit plan agreed while you're still negotiating the partnership. I kind of likened it to a prenup, as it were, so that if things go wrong later on, you've got an agreed way to resolve them. Now, please don't think that because I've started today's episode looking at some of the risks involved in T&E that this was a sober or depressing conversation. It definitely wasn't. Marnie was very generous with the insights and expertise that she shared. And there are, of course, many great examples of offshore T&E delivery being pursued by our universities, TAFEs and private providers. If you're at this year's AIEC conference this week, uh, you'll find Marnie, as she says, um, on one of the booths. She'll also be presenting. And I'm delighted to also have the opportunity to be presenting with the fabulous team of Rebecca Hall, Yana Pereira and Prashil Singh. We're discussing offshore opportunities for vet providers in Southeast Asia. If you're going to be at the conference, I hope you can join our panel Thursday, 10am in the Riverbank Rooms 2 and 3. See you there. For now, though, here's Marnie. Well, it is a real treat for me to have uh, my new guest for this week, uh, the fabulous Marnie Watson, who is Chief Commercial and Partnerships Officer at Acumen, which is part of Sanum S4. Uh, Marnie, it's a pleasure, A, because you do such interesting things, but B, you're also a listener to the podcast, so doubly welcome. And you would know that 
first question for all guests is tell us a bit about yourself. Who are you and what have you done in the sector and what are you currently doing? Wonderful, Claire. Thank you so much and thanks for having me on your show. I really, I want to take the opportunity to say a big thank you because your content I do listen to regularly. It's always really insightful and really informative. So a a big thank you to, to just start off with. So I am the Commercial and Partnerships Officer, Chief Commercial and Partnerships Officer for Acumen, as you said. So we're part of a, a larger organization called SunMS4. SunMS4 was founded by my boss. Uh, he's our executive chairman, a British guy who's very deeply experienced in India. He originally set up our operations in India, and we now have offices across India and Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, the UAE, UK, US, Australia, for example. We do what I do is essentially support just over 80 universities from Australia, New Zealand, UK, USA, Canada, and Ireland with their internationalization. So we help, for example, with the placement and management of in-country representatives in offshore locations. We support universities with their enrollment challenges, so, you know, GTE interviews or admissions processes or digital lead marketing. And we do a lot of consulting as well. So consulting is one of those very broad words, but a lot of work in transnational education advice, helping institutions set up partnerships, doing a lot of insight reports for market entry, for example. Um, I'm really enjoying it because it's a, it's a real culmination of the different parts of my background, Claire. So I've been in international education since my last year of university, uh, when University of New South Wales very generously let me go on a student recruitment adventure to Indonesia. And I shortly thereafter relocated to Jakarta and I spent three years living and working for UNSW, who were working in partnership at the time with Monash University and a local Yayasan, a local foundation, delivering an early t program, so a pathway program into the universities. So I spent three years of my early career in Indonesia, and I then moved over to Vietnam, and then after that to Singapore. So I've spent about 23 years based in Southeast Asia, working for study group Up Education, University of New South Wales, and very much focused on that student recruitment, agent management, transnational education, admissions, you know, marketing part of the the world of of international education. Brilliant. And I'm now in Sydney. Yes. I was just going to say, now back in Sydney. So I never thought I'd live in Sydney, but COVID changed lives for a lot of us. So I'm coming to you from down the road. (laughs) And great to have you uh, closer to us here. And I was reflecting as you were talking about some of the consulting and analytical work that SANMS4 does. Actually, on my very first trip to India, it was a work trip, delegation, international education, and we had this presentation from one of your then colleagues and, gee, it was since had, you know, other presentations and data analysis. But as someone who was wanting to understand India and what was happening, Super impressive and has stuck with me for all of those years. So uh, congratulations to um, you know that that great work because it does stick with you and and is really informative. So obviously you've had a huge emphasis on T and E through a fabulous career to date, and uh, particularly helping universities and higher education providers. What are some of the lessons that you've learned? What works? And also, what are some of the key risks that people who are new to this need to be thinking about? Mm, Sure. 
So first thing I'd say is that, you know, transnational education is one of those phrases which is often defined differently depending on who you speak to. And um, I'll just give you an example. We're currently partnering on one of the Australian Department of Education International Education Innovation Fund projects, which is focused on running pilots to test innovative ideas to help expand Australia's offshore delivery through TNE. And so for that project, we are using this very broad definition of TNE, which I sometimes see some raised eyebrows about. Um, but for us, that covers you know, COIL, for example, collaborative online international learning, executive education, micro-credentials, articulation, progression. So this very broad definition of TNE. To answer your question, what works in TNE uh, from my perspective, Claire, I think in threes. So I'm just let me share maybe three thoughts on the what works. Unsurprisingly, I think it differs from one market to another. So in some markets, the you know, the franchise to the validated, the licensed models of transnational education work extremely well. But in others, so if you take India as, as an example, the regulatory framework just doesn't or hasn't allowed for those kind of partnerships. And so models like progression or articulation has become extremely important. The second point I'd make is that for all markets, all models or forms of TE, it's really important to develop very well thought out partnerships. So what I mean by that is focusing on those mutual benefits between the two partners, making sure that there is genuinely a market for the programs that you're going to create together, and really thinking about how invested both of the institutions are in the partnership, which loops back to that mutual benefit point that I'm making. I guess thinking about those tangible desired outcomes for, for each side. Um, the third that I would say in terms of um, what works in TNE is just really focusing on a, a match, um, you know, really matching well in the first place. So have a, a considered and a non-emotional approach to assessing all the prospective partnerships that you could be taking on. Take those partnership opportunities through a rigorous process, a fast process, because TNE does take a long time. So you've got to act with with urgency. Um, but a real, you know, we use a phrase, you know, the balanced scorecard approach, where you're considering not just the financial factors, but also the risk, the strategic fit, the synergies between the two parties, the institutional ethics, the regulatory issues, you know, impact on your academic resourcing. So that's what I'd say in terms of works well. Mm -hmm. In terms of risks, you asked me, uh, if we think about the risks, and again, you know, bear with me thinking in my, my groups of three, but really doing homework in terms of particularly the regulatory framework. So what's allowed both in an Australian context, but also obviously in the country you're going to, but also with that regulatory side, the, the tax implications, the financial implications of the TNE. The second one I feel very strongly about, this is really important, is begin every partnership with a documented exit plan. It's so much easier to, you know, when you're in that sort of happy, glowing stage of creation, it's much easier to talk about the, the difficult exit plans if things started to go bad. Um, and linked to that is really thinking about that teach-out plan. The students are obviously the core of everything we're all doing. So how do we make sure that the students are looked after, they're able to finish their course if a partnership ends abruptly? And then the third I'd say is um, just we've touched on it with what works, but the reputational risk either with a partner but also a particular country, you know, just thinking about the geopolitical situation. And that due diligence with every prospective partner that I've talked about, so the financial ownership, governance. And I think, again, naturally with due diligence, speaking to other 
providers that may have worked with that institution before is a very logical step to take. Excellent. Thank you. Lots to think about there, particularly uh, for someone who's an ex-regulator, you know, really thinking through what, what this means both in country and and in your home country and really that emphasis on you've got to do the work to make sure this is the right partner for you. But, yes, yeah. I hadn't really thought through the get the prenup in place just in case that doesn't go wrong. That's exactly um, the word for it. Very good advice. So when you look at the Australian data, there's obviously, you know, growing amounts of, however defined, T&E happening offshore in, in higher education, but much, much less in VET, particularly, you know, if you say outside of China, hardly anything at all, which I'm still quite shocked by. Do you have any insights into why that might be? What is it that the sector isn't offering? What are the challenges? Why would that be from your perspective? Yeah, the challenge for vet providers, I think, is a mixture of the regulatory hurdles. So the ASQA, you know, government regulatory hurdles. And then when you combine that with financial realities of vocational education delivery, I think those two broad buckets would really summarise it. Before I go into that, though, in a little bit more detail, I really want to acknowledge the the impressive and, and very substantial history of VET offshore delivery historically through our TAFE providers. I know that there's a long history of TAFE T&E success. And, you know, just one quick example that comes to mind, you know, more than 20 years ago is that Northern Melbourne Institute of TAFE, you know, Melbourne Polytech as they're now called, they had over 30,000 offshore enrolments back in the day. So I really do just want to acknowledge the the history, the work, uh, the, you know, the insight that the, a lot of those TAFE providers particularly have in the area of T&E. Um, but the reality is that I think, as I say, the regulatory hurdles, both from the Australian government, but also the offshore delivery country government certainly impacts T&E delivery um, for VET providers. And the challenge is then combined with competition from other countries who maybe have it a little bit easier. And then, as I mentioned, the, the financial VET challenges. Some of the, the regulatory examples that I'm trying to touch on, I, I'm proud of the fact, and it's very important that the Australian government is focused on high quality provision. And that's that's key to, to us as a, as a nation. Part of that is the requirement to have trainers that have completed that Cert 4 in training and assessment. That's fantastic, but that creates cost, creates time challenges. And when we are competing to win projects against places like the UK or against Germany who don't have these minimum teaching requirements for offshore delivery, that can really create a competitive challenge for us. You know, that the need to do that TAE, the, the all the you know partial implementation of supervision, it all it adds that cost to our delivery model. I think the second thing as well I'd say is around the training packages. Our training packages, if I go back a step, you know, transnational education, it's about integrating localization with internationalization. So making sure that we're able to support local in-country society, you know, development. And I think at times our training packages are not always keeping up with either demand or, or realities in country. And if a, a vet provider is looking to make tweaks to that, you've suddenly got a non-accredited program. So I, I think there's some real challenges in there. And one that comes to mind that I think is incredibly important for so many countries is, is early childhood training in VET. You know, in demand, popular, key opportunity 
But the fact that the workplace training must happen in Australia for the assessment of competencies just makes it somewhat unrealistic transnational education opportunity. And then look, on pricing, Claire, and I think just just very, very briefly on that, I would say there's probably two things about that. Our labour costs are very high. um, So obviously our delivery costs are quite high. That can be challenging. And then you combine that with a very broad sweeping generalisation, but I'm going to go there, which is a student or their parent may be more inclined to pay more for a bachelor degree or for a master's degree than they might pay for a vocational program. And so that in itself leads to price sensitivity and, and, you know, that all combines to create challenges. Oh, I think your last point is really important that across a lot of the world, Southeast Asia particularly, jobs which within Australia, the vet sector trains you for, those jobs don't pay the premium that a job that a university qualification pays you for. So again, related to that price sensitivity test, will I pay for a local vet qualification as, again, thinking about Southeast Asia and and elsewhere as their own vet systems are improving and often modelled on the Australian, you know, system. Will I pay for a local qualification which will get me a job and a career or will I pay more for the Australian one for all of the reasons that you've outlined, which probably isn't going to get me the huge additional, you know, wage increase, salary increase that perhaps an Australian university qualification would. So exactly. I, I think that's that's a related factor. But you're right about TAFE and their strong history, and you can still see that in the data that that's a key part of we do have offshore. And I think your point about the non-accredited is where a number of private providers have gone, that Mm. it is too hard to take a full qualification. Let's instead take expertise and a reputation and work with employers in that kind of corporate upskilling and reskilling and see that some of the business and the IT Mm. kind of areas. But again, from a data perspective, really hard to see and understand it because of course it's it's not counted. Oh exactly that exactly the data measure is one of the most difficult things I think in our transnational education and it's I notice a lot compared to the UK. The UK tracks their TNA very very clearly and diligently and I find for Australia that's that's one of our big challenges is to work out where we actually sit comparatively. Oh, very good. Someone else was saying to me the other day that we also could do better in terms of how we collect our data on online delivery. So perhaps mm. there's a bit of a, a chance for a, a look afresh at, you know, data collections. Okay, last question. You've obviously worked overseas and today you're here in Sydney, but you're managing a team right across the world. We're all more comfortable with this, Zoom meetings, etc. but Share, if you wouldn't mind, some insights into how you make geographically distant teams work. Mm. Do you know, Claire, someone asked me this in a job interview about seven years ago or so, and I confess at the time I was a little bit bewildered by the question and didn't handle it very well because I've actually, I don't think I've ever had my team in the same office as me. So even as a young people manager, you know, in my whatever, late 20s, early 30s, my team were geographically dispersed. So I actually had to sit back and go, okay, that's not normal. I need to think about what it is that I do that makes this work. Yeah, look, I would say there's a couple of, a few things. 
I feel like these are perhaps very obvious to people, but at the same time, it is sometimes those things which are most obvious, which are the most important to be practiced and repeated and, and conscious of. The first I'd say is to be be very available, be very supportive, be very accessible to your team. Uh, and I think linked to that point, that availability, support, accessibility, is to be generous about time zones, be flexible about your own work hours. And so what I mean by that is I will typically actually sacrifice myself in terms of time zones rather than my team, because I think that's only fair as the people leader. I've had a boss in the past, not in Acumen, let me note that, who was very disciplined about his own time. And that made me begrudge the fact that we were geographically distant from each other. So I try very much to tip that on its head and, and be the generous one about time zones. Um, I think also to the point of generosity is the generosity with communication. So what I mean by that is a lot of it. So yes, diarized communication. So everyone's got expectations, but I spend a huge amount of time just chatting with my team on WhatsApp or SMS or you know mobile phone, whatever version they like, just to really maintain both the professional engagement, but also the social engagement. Because just you need to understand the whole person, I think, when you're geographically distant to really get the best out of them. Another few points I'd say, uh, setting very clear expectation on response times for work that you have. So I have a relatively high expectation on a response, even if it's not delivering what's being asked for, but an acknowledgement. Unless it's the weekend or unless it's a Friday night, again, I'm very strict around, you know, wherever possible, that's your personal space. But otherwise, and it comes back to a lot of communication, I expect same day uh, engagement with my team. Few others, I would say that when people are, are geographically dispersed, often you know they might be in smaller offices. It's really important that they have all of the tools that they need without a hassle. So again, it sounds very basic, Claire, but a laptop that works and you can independent independently resolve your issues with a phone, a credit card that works. So just those basic tools. I think linked to that big one, probably my biggest one that I should have left till last, but it links to that, um, that making sure people have what they need is really empowering your team. So making sure that they're able to operate independently of you in their geographically dispersed locations. So what to do in an emergency, what to do with inquiring journalists, for example. So, you know, some of those key heightened anxiety situations, just making sure they're very clear, this is your parameters or this is how you handle it, I think is a really important part of it. And that links to documentation of best practice, so making sure there's lots of clear documentation. So even though people are spread out, they 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 they've got clear expectations. And then my last one I'd go to is um, budget constraints acknowledged. But I think travel to your team as often as you can. So making sure they feel connected back to home base, back to the head office by being there and communicating face-to-face -face and experiencing their world as well, whether it's, you know, their recruitment activities, their agents, their trans transnational education partners. I think being part of their world physically is a key part of leading geographically dispersed teams. Oh, you're such an inspiration. What a lot to, <laughs> to think about and what a lot of great, good common sense, but really thoughtful advice and obviously drawn on years and years of expertise. Uh, Marnie, it is always a great pleasure to chat. I always learn from you. Can't wait to see you next week at AIEC. 
thank you very much for your time and look forward to seeing more of what you're doing into the future. Thank you so much, Claire. It's a delight to talk to you and I look forward to seeing you. We're at Booth 45 if you want to come and visit us. We'll see you there. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you.